Welcome back to The Mentors. This is Vadim. And Sergey. And you're listening to a show where we tell stories of ordinary people that became extraordinary entrepreneurs and leaders despite lack of experience, money, or connections. And today on the show, we have Natalie Gray, who is a co-founder of Head of Product at Cover. That's cover.com. And Cover is essentially a new age insurance company. We're going to tell you what that means in a little bit. Fantastic URL, by the way. That's true. Cover.com. That's that's (laughs) tough to get, I'm sure. But part of the reason why you probably have it is because actually to date, you have raised, the company has raised $27 million. uh, And it's been around for, was it about four years? Yeah. Four years this past January 6th. Gotcha. Wow. That's that's incredible. And uh, you know, aside from this business now, Natalie, you've, you're, you have some awesome accolades. You were selected for Forbes 30 Under 30 a few years ago. And as part of this team, you actually got into Y Combinator and went through one of the top accelerators in the world. So we're excited to hear more about Cover and generally your entrepreneurial experience that got you here. But the first question I wanted to focus on is actually near and dear to me and Sergey because we graduated in 2008 into the worst economy in history, or at least in our lives. And it was difficult for us to get jobs as well. And we were in finance, so it was doubly difficult. And I read that you wrote somewhere that you went to school in Canada, correct? Yeah, for my undergrad, I did. Gotcha. And you, at some point, decided to move to New York City. And Mm -hmm. somehow you ended up navigating this poor economy. And I guess in your own words, you created a job for yourself. The way you said it, I guess, is if you couldn't find the job, you'd make it yourself. So can you talk us through that experience? What did that mean for you? How did you create opportunities for yourself right out of college in a difficult economic climate? Yeah, so I graduated in 2009, which wasn't honestly any better um, in terms of the economy. And Canada is a very different place for job seekers. It's often that we you know, want to find a job, we're, we're looking for a job. I wouldn't say that Canada is known for its entrepreneurship. Hmm. So when I came out of, of school and I graduated from Queen's University, which is a few hours outside of Toronto with a Bachelor of Commerce, I didn't really want to go into the more traditional business path like accounting or management consulting. I really wanted something different, but I didn't I couldn't really put my thumb on what that was. So I ended up being accepted to NYU for a master's in marketing. And New York was always the city that I just wanted to live in. I, I was a diehard Sex in the City fan. So I <laughs> felt I, I knew the place I had never been to. You're such a um, So I packed up. I know, I know. <laughs> I, I appreciate that compliment. <laughs> um, I packed up and I moved to New York. And in my third year of university, so the year prior, I had interned at uh, Rush Communications, which is the umbrella company for um, fat fashion, global grind, Def Jam. And when I came back to New York, I let them know I was there. And I was lucky enough to get offered a job as a marketing coordinator. Hmm. Interesting. So, and sorry if I missed the timeline there a little bit. Did you get that job right after finishing your master's? No, that was that was during. So in September when I was, I had just landed in New York and I gave my prior boss a call and, and she was happy to hear from me and offered me a role there. So I, I was really lucky. And even though it was, a more entry-level job, um, I was able to just make it more than what it was. Got it. Yeah. And I would say to a lot of people that are either starting off in their careers or are in transition periods, that is the first thing you should try. Before applying to a bunch of jobs, try to leverage your existing network because you have a much higher chance of somebody taking a chance on you if they already believe that you've been proven in one way or another. So... 
talk us through how you think that experience positioned you to then become a co-founder of a startup. Because at some point, I understand you moved back to Toronto to start another company called Stylekick. I don't know if that was right after your, your first job, but I guess talk us through the evolution of how you ended up becoming a, an entrepreneur. So being in New York in my early 20s, it was a really formative experience for me. There's an element of just hustle that I hadn't been exposed to previously. So the mentality of if you want an opportunity, want to see success in your life, just go out and do it. There's no waiting for it or waiting for it to be given to you. And the type of people that I was lucky enough to work with at Rush were exceptionally gifted in their field and in marketing and partnerships. So they had extraordinary amounts of hustle and just making things happen from nothing. So it was always top of mind for me, especially in the economy that it was, to continue to be relevant, to continue to be needed in my job because a lot of jobs were getting cut. That, that was kind of just the, the way of the, the time. So when I did end up moving back to Canada and the decision was really based in working in hip hop, there's, there's, it's a very old model. Um, there's not... At least I didn't experience the same level of opportunity and growth that I had expected. So I, I went back to Canada and being on a, a student visa at the time, I wasn't able to stick around and, and find another job. So when I got back to Canada, I, I linked up with some former friends from university who are, are still my co-founders now. And they had been working on a fitting algorithm. So they were looking at ways to make e-shopping better for consumers by helping them figure out if a garment would fit them or not. Um, and because I had been working in fashion in, in New York with these brands as part of Rush, they invited me to join and kind of work with them as a sales arm. And that's really what kickstarted the whole journey for me. Hmm. So you moved out of New York basically out of necessity, it sounds like. You didn't want to stay at that job, but you couldn't because of your visa get another one. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't find a way to finesse my way to a different visa while still in the country. So I ended up having to go back to Canada to kind of figure out what I wanted to do next. And, and when I came back to Canada, the economy was just as bad in here. So I ended up going back to school for a bit just to kind of figure out what it is I wanted to do next. Got it. Okay. Now, when you were making the decision to join those friends or not on this project, what played into that decision? Were these just people that you were really excited to work with or was it something else? I'm a big believer in compounding opportunities as they come to you. I, I've never really had a grand master life plan that, that I've been working towards. It's really what opportunities are presenting themselves. How can I use my past knowledge to be successful in this new area? And it was a really interesting area. I've been working in fashion for the past you know, two years, uh, more so as on the retailer side of having you know, clothes manufactured, getting it to doors and different stores. Um, and this was really a different way of taking that knowledge I had learned and, and entering tech, but still not being complete fish out of water. So when you joined Stylekick, were you still uh, getting your next degree in Canada? Was, were you doing this simultaneously? Um, no, I, I wrapped up the degree by that time. So I, I went to get a master's of, of math. Um, oh. I found that when I was in New York working in fashion, one of the reasons why I was getting ahead, and this is kind of explaining the stepping stones, I was getting ahead because I knew, you know, basic finance, I knew how to budget, I knew how to, you know, work numbers. And, and I thought that if this is something that I'm not particularly good at, is it, getting me this far, what if I was, you know, a lot better at it? So I went and, and just went back to my alma mater, got a degree in math. And really, that was exceptionally helpful, I think, going into the world of tech, where you're rapidly trying to learn and iterate on a very short timeline. 
So I think that's really what I drew from that experience. And then when I went to work with Anand and Karn on Style Kick, I, I had kind of you know both sides figured out. One from my background in fashion, the next being able to learn quickly, learn math very quickly, and be successful at it. So what did you do when you got there? Because with such a small team, I think the the pressure to execute and execute quickly is always there. And you said you, I believe you said you joined in the sales and marketing capacity. Did you basically just mm-hmm. learn that on the fly? And how did you measure your own success in that? new role that maybe you haven't had before? Well, our first stab into marketing what they had built, so they effectively took the Kinect sensor. You know, if you're playing video games and doing a dance dance revolutions and snapping your body, so they effectively took two of those Kinect sensors and then were able to map a perfect form and then use the map to shave away, you know, clothing and get a perfect 3D model of, of a body. So they wanted to market that to large e-commerce brands and have it be a plugin. So if you were shopping on like, the Gap, for example, and you wanted to see whether or not these jeans would fit you, you could just press that plugin, have your form, and then be able to assess the fit of those clothing. So because I had been working in the States, I had these contacts with larger brands. I was more so doing it connects with, with larger brands and, and pitching what it is that we had had worked on. Hmm. Now, how are you surviving at this point? Because I'm, I'm assuming this company was really early stage. Maybe you were making some money as a, on performance basis, but were did you have some savings saved up? Did they raise any money? How did that work? So it was just based on on savings. The three of us, when we got together, we we'd each had um, a bit of savings. Um, and then we ended up joining a Canadian accelerator in 2013 that gave us like a, a very small amount of money, like 30 grand. And we were able to stretch that to six months of fuel for this company. And what signals were you looking for in the marketplace for that business? And did it end up working at all? I mean, effectively, we were looking for the wrong signals. <laughs> we were very much so focused on on vanity metrics that were not tied to revenue. So we were looking at number of users, engagements, and page views per month. And none of that was amounting to any type of revenue. But in terms of like the outside, Salvix seems, you know, quite successful. We were, you know, 15 million page views per month. We were in um, 80 different countries. We were named one of the best looking apps by Apple. We were translated into 14 different languages, the number one fashion app in France. So we had all of these gold stars attributed to us, but it wasn't amounting into, into revenue. So that was, I think, at, at our journey, just continually hammering away, but not focusing on the right thing. And maybe can you give us like a highlight reel of how you were able to accomplish some of those accolades? I mean, specifically uh, the 15 million page views. What what did you guys do to grow to that level? So it was running experiments, looking for success, abandoning the ones that weren't working, and then really honing in the ones that were working. So when we first started, we were looking to be a brand plugin. That wasn't panning out the way that we wanted it to pan out. We focused on being a website. Um, but driving traffic to a website is really hard. So we pivoted to being a mobile app. And we were just, I think, good timing right when you know, the mobile space really exploded. So driving engagement and traffic to the app just to store and just through organic install, we got really good at that. And what, what was like the most effective experiment that you ran to drive installs for the app, if you remember? So it was really optimizing our, our app store keywords. It wasn't as expensive as it is now, you know, using Facebook to hook it to our account and drive apps installs as well as getting our referral program in a place where everything that was shared from application was tagged with file kit. 
So we really were just looking at how to get more and more people onto our app. And, and the difference between a website, right? You need to have your user remember to go visit that site. Whereas a mobile app, you have a direct line to that person at all times, especially if they enable push. Right. That makes sense. So a lot through organic and, and good timing, it sounds like. So yeah. to fast forward a little bit, you... I feel, I believe I read somewhere you worked on it for about two and a half years. You actually applied to Y Combinator mm-hmm. a few times and got interviews, but got rejected. Eventually, mm-hmm. uh, acquired by Shopify. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Now, what was the story there in terms of the transition from Shopify to Cover? Did you all work at Shopify for some time? When did you start working on this next business idea with the same exact co-founders? So when we were acquired into Shopify, we were our own mobile unit. So we were still working extremely close together. And we would still get together on weekends and just do little hack days amongst the four of us. So it was, you know, we thought of invite apps and, and just really anything, you know, go to the cottage for a weekend have a 24 pack of beer and just and just build things together, which is a very Canadian way to start a business. <laughs> we had been at Shopify for, for less than a year. And this was an idea that we had previously with Sidekick when we were trying to get uh, business insurance. I really didn't know how to get business insurance. So I had just, you know, texted my mom and asked her, you know, where do you buy insurance from? And and she she referred me to her broker that my family had been working with for decades. And it was a very manual paper process. We had to go to their office in downtown Toronto. We had to drop up a paper check. So we always had this idea of you know, kind of just germinating the background of what if insurance was easy to get as taking a picture. And that was just really the foundation of one of these weekend hack days. We put together an app with four buttons of what would it be like or would people be receptive to having insurance by just taking a picture. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, so I, I get it. All right. Secret to success is be Canadian and uh, take trips to, to weekend <laughs> trips and drink beers to, and come up with different ideas. That sounds great. Um, It'll solve everything. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, obviously you guys also were in kind of a, a more comfortable position this time around because you were working at Shopify. So to actually take a step back before we move into the story of cover, how did that Shopify acquire come about? So at the time of that, that two and a half years that you mentioned that we had been working at Biokick, it was a really hard slog. It was bootstrapping most things, not being well-funded, working really long hours, and trying to basically cultivate a two-sided marketplace. And none of that is easy. And at the time that the offer from Shopify came around, we were pretty confident on our ability to distribute on the consumer side. And really, the next half of the equation would be getting the brand onboarded so that we could start selling and, and, and trying to you know, monetize what we had built. But I think, honestly, we were all very burnt out at that point. So did we want to... Our expectation was another two and a half years of really hard work discovering another half of our business that we hadn't really done yet or going into a company like Shopify that was you know, well on its way to success the ability to work with really smart people. And we jumped at the opportunity. And was that so that was a completely inbound opportunity? They found you guys and approached you? So Canada, the, the tech team in Canada is actually quite small. So, mm-hmm. so we were fairly well acquainted with a few of their executives. So we had mm-hmm. been in talks about ways to have Southwick and Shopify work together. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that time, they were trying to really beef up their mobile practice. So they countered with, instead of just working together, how would you come work with us? Got it. Now that's great. And usually the acquisitions of any kind usually start as conversations about partnerships. So it's a, it's no surprise there. Mm-hmm. 
So I want to go back to those cottage hack days that you guys had, because you must have tried a bunch of different ideas during those times, those weekend trips. How did you hone in on this particular one? And what signals were you looking for at that time to, to figure out what you're going to pursue next? And, I, and one thing I'll add is I, I found uh, your co-founder, Karin, said something in an article. And the quote is, when you come across behavior that violates your expectations and consumers, that's usually when you double down. So how did you guys get to that? And what did that mean for you? Just to expand a little bit on Sergey's question. I think it's a couple of different questions <laughs> all at once. So I'm sorry. The first question was, was around how did we find this behavior? What success were we, were we looking for? Yeah, exactly. Because um, we and, probably and, were trying different ideas. So how did you hone in on this one? So I think one of the big things that we learned at Stylekick was users will send you down rabbit holes that are very costly in terms of time and development. And really, you know, it's what do you want from this user? And if we want to be a profit-seeking company, we need profit. So we were looking for what are behaviors that a person is is enthusiastic enough that they were willing to put down a credit card and pay for this service. Mm. Um, not just engage with or like a photo, but really pay for and want to have as part of their life. So in our first iteration of Cover, our hypothesis was, will people even look for insurance on the app store and, and try to buy insurance? So we had literally four buttons that opened a camera. I believe it was auto, home, travel, and other. And they could take a picture of their property. And we would wrap up that request and send it to one of our broker partners. It was actually the same broker that we had worked with for our style take business insurance. And in the first 48 hours, he had people that we had sent him that were, were shopping and were, were purchasing insurance from him. So that was really exciting to see not only people be really receptive and want to engage with our product, but be willing to pay for our product. Can, can you and, go a little bit more into that that test that you did? Because it sounds like more than just a Sunday. So you, how did you get the people, and then how, what did you set up to be able to have that, you know, to, to have that actually transaction happen and send the people there? So it was really simple. It's what is the minimum absolute thing that we can do that tests this hypothesis. So the app itself, um, our angle was insurance should be as easy as taking a picture. So we had, uh, as I said, auto, home, travel, and other insurance. Um, a user could click a button. It would pop the camera open. They could take a picture of their property. We'd already have their email address. And then we'd wrap that up in a request. We would literally, for email, we'd forward it to our broker partner. And then that broker would have their sales team um, reach out to the customer and gather you know, the remainder of the, the need to properly price and sell that insurance policy. Got it. And, and how many people did you send that broker's way and how did you get those people? The number of people, I honestly could not remember, but it was it was below 100, but in the tens for sure. Sorry, and your second question was? Oh, I was just wondering how, how you got those people. Like, Did you just ask your friends or did oh, you go online somewhere? No, I believe we just put some money on Facebook. We created a couple ads and then redirect them to the our app page. Got it. Interesting. So, okay. So you had now something that in a relatively short period of time seemed to be working. Now what? What did you do with that information? We thought it was fairly interesting um, what we had done. So in a couple of weeks, we had honestly made more money through cover with our affiliate kickback from the broker than we had through Stylekick in doing it for years. So um, we had contacts at YC from having being interviewed and rejected so many times. Um, so we just sent the idea by them and asked them what they thought of it. They encouraged us to apply. I was a little you know, apprehensive about that encouragement given how many times we'd flown down there and been told no, but we did it. We really had nothing to lose. And lo and behold, they accepted us. And we decided to take the opportunity. 
That sounds great. So tell us about that three-month experience because I'm sure a lot changed and it was a lot of rapid learning in those months. What, how did the business change in those few months from the direction that you had perhaps from Y Combinator and just as you dove more into the market and ran other experiments? What really helped us through YC was the speed and pace at which they wanted to see not only us solving problems, but identifying new problems. So from the start of YC, when we were just really acting as lead gen, so we'd get the customers in, we'd forward them to the broker partners. By the end of it, we were in a position where we wanted to transition into being the broker ourselves. So instead of earning a a small kickback, from sending a lead over, we would instead be the party that was binding these insurance policies. And the, the cool part about insurance is for the broker, you're not just earning one time with one sale. For every year that you have a policy enforced, that broker is earning commission in perpetuity. So it's a pretty positive LTV model. So at that point, um, we decided to take that lead. And at this point, is it still just the three of you? It was just the four of us, actually. Oh, the four of you. Okay. Who was the fourth person? I was our fourth co-founder who also worked on uh, Stylekick with us. So he joined um, after I joined Stylekick. So this is actually something that that maybe I think some of our listeners would wonder. You know, you have this lead generation engine that's working and becoming a broker sounds like it might there might be a lot of regulatory hoops to jump through and things to do. So mm-hmm. was that an easy decision for you? Like it was obvious you guys want bigger margins and you're just going to figure out how to do it. Like how, how did you decide that, you know, we're going to now dive into this hairy thing, even though this other thing is already working? It's just running the numbers. We looked at what's the opportunity for us if we continue as a lead gen business versus what's the opportunity if we transition into into a broker and the brokerage model and going down the path of owning more of the customer experience was bigger and just more interesting to us. So at this point, when you graduated Y Combinator, obviously they give you guys some funding. How quickly was it until you raised additional funding? And do you remember at all what you guys were doing in revenue at that point? We raised our seed, I believe it was in March of 2016. And then I believe we raised the A almost exactly a year later. I don't recall the exact figures of what we were doing in revenue at that time. But at the very least, how did your role now change because you have a little bit of capital now, your team is going to be growing. How did your job change? And maybe what were some of those early challenges, even for you personally in the company? So I started off, well, I guess to style I started off there in sales and then slowly moved over to product design. So when we were starting cover, that was my role. And I was the solo product designer for quite a while up until I believe it was almost two years in before we hired another designer. As you said, you know, the insurance space is full of regulatory hurdles. So that was really our focus in the beginning was getting through those hoops um, and building that side of our business. So we didn't really need to scale the team um, aggressively in, in that first year. What kind of metrics were investors looking at once you started going out and pitching? Were they looking for conversions? Are they looking for revenue mostly? Do you remember the kind of questions you guys were asked? For our seed or for our A? Uh, for your How big was your seed? Um, I believe our seed, our seed was 3.2. 
Okay, so yeah, so let's let's start with the with the seed. I'm curious because that's you're at this stage where you have something that's that's working, but for a lot of people, they don't know when they should go out and start to think about raising that seed. So, do you remember the mm-hmm. kind of questions you were asked and what kind of metrics people were looking for? Yeah, so really, the main part of our story was here's the traction that we have in terms of downloads and quote requests, so people actively looking for insurance, and then how many that we were able to convert from our brokerage. But really, the seed is the easiest money that you'll ever raise because it's less baked into the numbers that these investors are making decisions on and more so the size of the opportunity and the team that's trying to solve this problem. So we were seeing really positive numbers in terms of downloads and requests. So people that said, I want insurance, send me a quote for insurance. But where our funnel was dropping off was when we were sending them to our broker partners because we really couldn't control the experience when you're lead gen. It's really up to the discretion of the person that bought the lead on how they want to service the customer. And we really wanted to own that experience. So our narrative was around we need to raise this funding so that we can focus on that metric and improve it. And here's the opportunity that we believe will exist if we do that. So you guys are chugging along, growing. Now you have over 30 uh, partners and actually you're creating your own insurance products. But at the time, how long did it take you to start signing up these partners? It took some time and it took a lot of effort to do that, especially with the number of partners that we signed in such a short amount of time. So insurance is an industry that's really not been touched by tech at all. So their model for growing out a brokerage business are very slow and steady. And we didn't want that. We wanted fast and now in a very millennial fashion. So once we were licensed brokers ourselves, we had converted coverage cover into a brokerage. Like that's fine. Then you have to go out and get these larger carriers to appoint you and give you permission basically to sell their insurance products. You can't just sell whatever you want. So how did you guys accelerate that process? Because you said that it was difficult, but you were able to do it in a relatively short period of time. And were you involved in these mm-hmm. meetings? So it was predominantly our CEO, Karn Soroya, who handled the insurance relationship. Mm-hmm. And really, it was through networking. One thing that we we learned is many of the top tier VCs, they have insurance uh, insurance companies as their LPs. So we were able to get introductions through the investors that we had. And that really uh, you know, started the ball rolling for us. Mm, interesting. Okay, that's smart. So you guys had grown to about... I think it was 40 people up until a year ago. But now, um, when we started this conversation, you told us you're at 124 employees. So obviously, mm-hmm. securing those partnerships was crucial to helping you grow and then securing more funding, of course, as well. So talk about now for you. How has the opportunity changed? How has the job changed? You know, what are some of the new challenges that you personally are experiencing in the company? Because so far, everything we've talked about, it just sounds like things have been working out really great for Cover. Yeah. You know, you guys got mm-hmm. into Y Combinator really early on, basically on a prototype. There was some pull from the market you identified from these consumers, clear demand. You started uh, getting these partnerships and through introductions from investors, you were able to sign on these carriers relatively quickly. But I want to maybe try to uncover some of the challenges along the way. And, and I'm assuming when you're triple in size in a year, there's going to be some challenges. Oh, for sure. I think the speed at which my role as a founder has changed, especially in this past year, has, has been incredibly challenging. And oftentimes, the rate and speed at which you know our role as a founder is changing, there's been times I'm not even aware that my function is changing, which is kind of difficult to explain. But I know the founders out there will understand what I mean. I think one part of being a founder, having that like entrepreneurial mentality is 
I can do this better. I can do this myself. There's nothing that I can't learn and try and do. But then your business gets to a certain size where that's just no longer possible. You need other people and other people that are more skilled, that have more experience in certain areas and being able to empower them to do their best work and really refocusing our attention less so on our own work as individual contributors and more so there's 120 of them and four of us and how we can best help them do their work, hold them accountable to to the work that they've promised. It's a very different set of challenges, I think, than what I was used to. You know, speaking of trying to create a certain environment and a business and a company for yourself, you know, we meet with a lot of early stage entrepreneurs, I think, especially on the East Coast, you have to prove metrics early on to secure any kind of funding, especially if it's anything in the millions. And a lot of founders that we talk to are kind of torn. They're like, should I spend my time fundraising? Should I just focus on profitability and not really rely on funding? And you, you guys raise a pretty substantial amount of funding. So can you talk a little bit about that decision? And I'm curious, like, were you guys profitable at a certain point where you had the luxury to make that decision? Or were you making enough revenue where you thought, you know, maybe we don't need as much money outside funding raised? And how did that play into the sort of evolution of the business? So we are, we are not yet profitable. We're still reliant on venture funding. And I really think that is the choice of the founders, whether or not you want to have slow and steady growth that maybe is bordering on a lifestyle type model, or you do want to pursue that startup model. And what makes a startup a startup is really following that model. It requires large infusions of cash to have exponential growth. Mm -hmm. And the type of model that we were pursuing, the rate at which we wanted to grow, we decided to use venture funding. But I, I really think that's the choice of the model that you want to pursue. It's not the same for everyone. And I think if we had decided to pursue more of a lifestyle model, then we're kind of on the path of building more of a traditional brokerage. Mm-hmm. And that's not what we wanted to do. Right. You want to disrupt the industry. But it sounds like also you had you and you continue to have the growth to back it up where it is a risk of taking on money and spending it quickly, but it's a justified risk. I think that that's true. The hardest thing to find is product market fit. But you know, once you have product market fit, um, that's not the time to be conservative in your spending. That's the time to embrace the growth. Mm, yeah, absolutely. You gotta you gotta double down on on it as your as your co-founder said. So, you know, one kind of final maybe parting question I wanted to ask you is it sounds like you became a bit of a chameleon. I mean, you had, you know, you got these degrees, they were more math oriented, then you went into uh, more of a sales and marketing role, then you got into more of a product role, which is a very hybrid role and a design role, which uh, did you teach yourself these skills or you kind of pick them up along the way? Almost all of it is self-taught. I think the one piece of the learning that I had from my math degree, I crunched a three-year math degree into one year. And I know I can do hard things on a tight timeline. I know how I learn. I know how I learn most efficiently. And there's just, there's so many resources available, especially now. I think there's really no limit to what we as people can learn or want to uh, try doing. It's really just, what do you want to learn? What's the goal? Here's the plan and dedicate time every single day until you are there. So what is your then tip for how you focus? I mean, crunching a three-year degree into one is is pretty impressive. So do you have any advice for listeners how you tend to get good at focusing so you you make sure you actually get that outcome? Uh, Yeah, I think there's two things. I'm a huge believer in meditation. I think being able to control that overactivity in your brain and and really bring it down to that zero level is, is incredibly powerful and important. So I do meditate every single day and I have for years. 
The second is I find it most difficult to just start, (laughs) to just sit down and dedicate that time to doing something. So the trick I use is just setting a timer for 30 minutes. One you know, advice the professor gave me is you can do anything hard for 30 minutes. It's not that much time. So I'll just set that timer for 30 minutes. And it's really, I, I always kind of surprise myself and what I'm able to achieve if I just remove all distractions and just give 30 minutes of downtime focus. Yeah, that sounds like good advice. A lot of times our brains will tell us, oh, I don't want to do this or yeah. we kind of default to wanting to just do a task. Maybe that's easier or less intensive on the brain. But if you tell yourself, well, I'm only going to do it for 30 minutes, it seems more achievable. Yeah, like I, I don't have to finish in 30 minutes. I just have to put work towards it. Mm, that's a good point. So if we have a listener right now that's listening to the show, maybe they're a little bit younger in their career, uh, but like you, they have a bunch of varied interests and maybe a lot of different talents as well. What would you tell them to maybe make them feel a little bit more comfortable about all the uncertainty ahead of them or maybe all the different opportunities that they could take advantage of? I think it's finding something that you enjoy and knowing that this is something you're going to have to dedicate a lot of time to. Oftentimes I'll hear you know, founders tell me that I really want to do X, but I'm going to do Y for a bit until I can do X. And if it's, if it's X you want to do, go do that. And you'll find the motivation and the drive to achieve that thing if you really want to, as opposed to trying to just force yourself through it. Mm, I think that's wonderful advice. Uh, Essentially follow your gut, it sounds like to me as well. Mm -hmm. Good advice for me too, (laughs) I would say. Uh, well, Natalie Gray, it's been really awesome talking to you. It sounds like you've definitely made some uh, right choices in your career. And, you know, I mean, one constant is, of course, your partners and your co-founders. Once you found people that you trust, that you know, you enjoy working with, and I mean, I'm sure it's not always sunshine and butterflies, but at the very least, the trust seems to be there. Why not start another company and see where it takes you? And it sounds like that was a good decision. So thank you so much for coming on our show. We're excited to continue to follow uh, the story of cover. It sounds like you still have uh, kind of the world ahead of you that you guys can conquer. And I'm really glad that our friend Profo was able to introduce us to have this conversation with you. Yeah. Thank, thank you so much. And glad for Profo as well. Awesome. Cool. Thank Thanks. you.